Can I, uh, I ask permission for one minute for, for this question, and that is, you have indicated that Mars had a, uh, was totally different thousands of years ago. Is it possible that there was a civilization on Mars thousands of years ago? So the evidence is that um, Mars was different billions of years ago, not billions. thousands of years ago. Well, yes. That. And, and um, there would be, there is no evidence that uh, I'm aware of that would you, rule, would you rule that out? That, see, there's some people, well, anyway. I would, I would say that is extremely unlikely. Okay, well, thank you all. Thank you, Mr. Brothers. Thanks for the good job you're doing. God bless. Thank you, Mr. Rohrbacher. Looking forward to finding out what's up. Out what's up for sure. Marilyn Manson can walk into our town and promote hate, violence, suicide, death, drug use, and Columbine-like behavior. I can say... Linking violence in movies to higher levels of aggression and violent behavior. Recognizing that many children love violent movies. So motherfuckers are always trying to escape. Take a look around! Dodge this. Welcome back to Take a Look Around, a podcast that is cosmic as it is horrific. Open the podcast doors, Al. I'm afraid I can't do that, Sean, because I need you to tell us the upcoming new metal movies. Thank you very much for that wonderful introduction, Al, with Alistair Bates, of course, and my name is Shawnee Campion, and I'm here to tell you all about upcoming new metal films for the year of our Lord, 2020. Can I get a drum roll, please? For the year of our Lord, 2020, there are no new new metal films. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You get nothing. <laughs> Better luck next week, I guess. Who'd have thunk it? This week, we have a fantastic gentleman of Vinta Vista, premiere podcast for smart people by smart people. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Twitter's Illy Boshin. Yui, how are you? I'm good, fellas. How you doing? I'm not too bad, man. I'm not too you bad. You're going to go full mask off and tell us your real name, Illy? <laughs> My name is Andrew. Wonderful. Andrew, tell us a little bit about another project you've been working on at the moment, your Bones podcast. Oh my goodness, the uh, the Boney Island Whitefish, which, as we all know, is a play on the Coney Island Whitefish, the local slang for a condom that you have found on the beach. <laughs> I learn so much when we talk. <laughs> Um, yes, that is a podcast that I'm doing with uh, Riley, the host of uh, the Trash Future podcast out of the UK, which is confusing because he's Canadian. They think I'm slow, eh? <laughs> right. So, you gotta, you gotta think British while you're hearing. Ooh, I gotta lie down. My head is spinning. <laughs> yep. And uh, he came to me and said, what if we did a podcast where we recapped all of the episodes of season five of the crime procedural tv show bones and i said what and he explained to me what is bones <laughs> but he explained to me that season five of bones is a very special season because it's kind of in between the point where for like you know an episodic crime of the week sort of tv show they sort of ran out of ideas but this is the season between them running out of ideas, but also realizing that you can do like longer stories and character arcs. <laughs> so instead, this is a, a season of Bones in which um, many of the crimes may or may not have been committed by like leprechauns or demons <laughs> or man-sized chickens. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now... We could talk about Bones all day. all day long, but there's already a podcast for that. No, our podcast is about new metal, new metal films, and specifically the film Ghosts of Mars by John Carpenter. After a decade of middling returns, studio interference, and a growing weariness with Hollywood, did John Carpenter decide to make a thoughtful treaty on matriarchal society's approach to the existential quandary, that is, the disembodied ghosts of the rightful owners of the land returning to take back what is theirs? No, he did not. Get out of 
was supposed to be a routine prisoner transport. Williams was arrested on the suspicion of murdering six rail workers. The bodies were hung and decapitated. But here, a million miles from home. Hello? Anybody here? Drop your weapon. I ain't going back. They're about to discover nothing is what it seems. We got a situation there. Everybody in the mart's gone inside. What the hell is going on out there? Whatever used to live here, we woke it up. It takes us. I'm talking about a kind of possession. Something's kicking out there. We need us, and we need you. None of us is gonna survive if we don't stick together. Come on. Time to stay alive. From the master of terror. Go! John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. Damn, girl. I like you already. Shit, so this film starts with one of those fantastic exposition dumps that's all done in a voiceover, running text all on the screen. But it's got that really cool early 2000s alias font as well. And there's the, the, there's the little drop there when we go over Mars that says... Uh, political type matriarchal I know I was like I get enough of that from my wife <laughs> <laughs> score one for the chicks uh, you guys get society but it's 2176 <laughs> um, so voiceover explains that there's a dig and after this dig that everything goes wrong and then it cuts to space judge judy this courtroom where the main character melanie bottle i think was her name is introduced played by natasha henstridge of from species, species. yeah yes. baby <laughs> now i feel like this is as good a time as any to point out why is natasha henstridge the lead actress in a film that's not species i i didn't think she had any kind of career whatsoever and what little of it she did have went down the tubes with this and also i i have fond memories of species because my dad used to rent it out from the video store maybe once a month <laughs> A little too often. <laughs> Way too often. Species rocks, man. <laughs> it's got Ben Kingsley. Yeah, and Forrest, uh, Forrest Whitaker plays an empath. Like, that's his whole character. It's just, he can feel people's feelings. <laughs> anyway, we're talking yeah, about so Species. <laughs> so there's some really great names in the opening scroll for bit part actors. We get Wanda De Jesus and Lobo Sebastian, which like don't play the main character of Desolation Williams, but you <laughs> wish that they did. Uh, there's Jason Statham, <laughs> as Jericho. Yeah, anyway, we, di we digress. This courtroom scene, Mel, the main character, is being asked what went wrong, what happened on Mars. What's the deal with well, yeah, Mars? What's the deal with Mars and all of these damn ghosts? Which, in a nutshell, she is the only survivor of some mission gone wrong, and she's been asked in a very Star Trek style setting to kind of spill the guts, you know, what what really went wrong. So the whole film is told in flashback, which immediately dispels any tension because you you're immediately told that everyone died. <laughs> but also, like I had an overwhelming sense throughout this, particularly with the everything told in flashback style. You get the feeling that there was an idea behind it, but it doesn't work at all. It's basically the plot moves along to a certain point. A character asks another character so what happened? And they go, ah, allow me to give you another flashback <laughs> yeah, to fill in. There was like seven fucking flashbacks within flashbacks in this movie. <laughs> but they're all like, I kind of got the sense that it was meant to kind of be this, ah, here are the different branches of this storyline yeah. coming together and merging into one. But instead it's just like, I can't think of a smarter way to tell you about what these guys were doing while this was Could happening. Could have been that Mel was an unreliable narrator and that her version of the story isn't really what happened. It also could have been that this was just one branch of a, a branching Rashomon-style story where we got different mm. perspectives of the same event. Like Rashomon? That's not how I remember it. But no... 
none of that happened. This is just the straight, uh, and then this happened, <laughs> and then I went over here, and this guy was mean to me. Well, the way it winds up panning out is that basically it is a, it's a completely like a bog-standard sci-fi story, except that there is an, an A plot that follows Natasha Henstridge's character. There is a B plot that follows whoever is not currently with her at that exact moment. And the way that they resolve the fact that these things take place at different times is that every time, like the A plot and the B plot meet back up, they say, okay, tell me what you did while I was doing the last bit. (laughs) Now, speaking of bog-standard sci-fi stories, we find ourselves on a train on Mars. Big one for all the train heads out there. This is a beautiful, magnificent train. But we're introduced to a crack team of prisoner transporting police officers which is a a pretty wacky cast we've got jason statham fresh off of snatch and lock stock and two smoking barrels his hair is holding on for dear life (laughs) yeah so this was filmed before the one uh but released after it and if you look at the deterioration between his hairline in the one and ghosts of mars over the course of eight months it is horrendous the man is just losing it every time he he takes a shower now also along for the ride we get 70s blaxploitation figure and jackie brown star pam Greer, who's doing a fantastic job in this she seems to be the only one that's in on the joke we also get clea duvall of Veep and the faculty fame who seems to have taken three Xanax before filming (laughs) hoping no one has noticed so on this train revealed that this police team are a crack team of police who are on a mission to escort Desolation Williams such a good name they explain that you know, Desolation Williams is one of, just one bad motherfucker, one of the universe's most dangerous criminals who's killed six people the last time they tried to take him <laughs> down. <laughs> There's not very many people for the galaxy's biggest criminal. <laughs> the Rock and Roll Mars train pulls up at this station and they all get out and walk around town and it's this ghost town and through this really terribly done in ADR voiceover they explain it. Normally, because it's Friday night, people are out getting drunk and fucking. So it's kind of weird that nobody's out and drunk and fucking on the streets of Mars. <laughs> and speaking of getting drunk and fucking, Jason Statham's Jericho is the world's horniest. Yeah, like really? straight away. <laughs> he spends the whole film tricking Natasha Henstridge into joining a room with him so he could try and make out. It's ridiculous. He's also like, the whole movie, he just breathes through his mouth. Oh like, my just like, god. I, every scene he's in, it's like fucking James Gandolfini with a lap band. He's just like... <laughs> I so could not stop thinking about what kind of sinus problems Jason Statham must have. I was The whole time I'm like, drop his levels, like get the mic away from his fucking face. The whole time he's just like, what's going on? <sighs> well, that they also explain how the Martian uh, surface, they need to take that, that asthma puffer of pure oxygen every 15 minutes because they're currently terraforming Mars. And they tastefully do the, uh, well, remember like two years ago when you had to wear a full face mask on Mars? Well, now you don't have to wear a full face mask on Mars <laughs> to explain why this. But now we don't have the budget for Mars. <laughs> Another cute part in it was that, uh, that comes back to haunt us later is that Natasha Henstridge's Mel is addicted to some kind of future drug called Clear that basically makes you dream of waves and just chillax yeah, that shit looks chillaxify dope, for a little while <laughs> yeah it looks like it looks cool but it, it made me realize that the thing that this film probably reminds me of the most is some of those philip k dick books from the late 60s early 70s like the three stigmata of palmer eldritch and ubik and maze of death where a lot of Philip K. Dick stuff is blown up onto the big screen, but the majority of his work was about people taking drugs because they worked a shitty job on Mars. (laughs) Maybe a bit autobiographical, who knows? (laughs) (laughs) As they kind of walk around Mars, they realise everything's gone to shit. There's a lot of cool um, like metal 
little Blair Witch trinkets everywhere. Yeah, I yeah. I have that but... exact word written down, <laughs> Blair Witch trinkets. So as our heroes walk into prison slash police station of the town, they uh, find a whole bunch of sweet decapitated corpses hanging from the ceiling. It's then when the penny drops for everybody. <laughs> and they're, just, they're introduced to a scientist character. I can't remember what her name is, but she's sitting in a cell... And she explains that her weather balloon crashed. And then there's just this ludicrous oh slow motion scene of a weather balloon crashing on Mars. It's, uh, I was cackling. It's so funny. That's, that's oh, thank you. <laughs> I just love the balloon exploding in slow motion. It was so... My balloon. <laughs> yeah, no! <laughs> it's goddamn windmills, man. The windmills. And if it doesn't... If it doesn't blow, you can forget about television for that night. Now, clearly, they've realized that everything's gone to shit in... I think it's called Starlight is the name of the the little mining town we're in. The only people that seem to still be alive are the prisoners that have been left behind. It's at this point we are introduced to (laughs) Desolation Williams. Now, we should probably give a bit of context for the film at this point. So, Ghosts of Mars originally started its life in the early 90s as the sequel to Escape from L.A., Escape from Mars, in which Snake Plissken would undertake this mission against the Ghosts of Mars. Now, Escape from L.A. failed at the box office and Carpenter went on to other things. So, by the time that this script rolled around, Screen Gems wanted to use Ice Cube. Much of the script has not changed in any way outside of the fact it's no longer a Snake Plissken vehicle. So, they've given him the... I want to know whose job it was to come up with Desolation Williams because it it honestly sounds like that's the washboard player in Hobo Johnson's (laughs) band. Like it's it, it doesn't sound cool to me. I love how like much of a dad body he has in this movie as well. Like you can't tell if he's like fat or muscly. He's just got this big keg for a chest. Got cool sideburns though. Yeah. And he's he's even wearing <laughs> yeah. he's wearing the same outfit as as Snake mm, Plissken. Yeah, exactly. He's just... <laughs> and his his work throughout this film is cartoonishly bad, which is strange because he he's giving this like streetwise realistic portrayal of a gangster whereas everyone else is just a cartoon character and it never gels together no you uh, Ice Cube is on record as saying that this is his least favorite film that he's ever been in, and he was in Are We There Yet? <laughs> kind of get the sense that, like you said, besides the fact that uh, you know they they had Jason Statham slotted in there, and they said we need more star power, you know, and they put him in there. But you also sort of get the sense through some of John Carpenter's history and the inclusion of Pam Greer and that sort of stuff that there was a bit of a, I guess, like, hopefully a bit of a nod in the direction of, like, black exploitation kind of stuff. Um, but yeah. it really doesn't... It doesn't shake out that way. It doesn't shake out that way at all. No. They don't even ever get a scene together. <laughs> Pam Greer has wandered off to die long before Desolation Williams even turns up. One of a series of unceremonious decapitations. <laughs> yeah, and then there's that whole scene where the head gets decapitated and put on the pike. Jason Statham climbs up the hill behind a Martian lady and finds all of the Martian people just hanging out, chanting to each other whilst peering <laughs> over a rock. It's like those great scenes in Cobra where oh, everyone is just hanging out, <laughs> clanging axes together. Axes it's together. Never, really, never really explain what they're doing or why. On the way back down to tell everybody about all the Martians over the hill, Jericho bumps into... <laughs> they really just are over the hill, yeah, yeah. aren't they? <laughs> uh, Jericho bumps into a group of prisoners. Well, this scene is where the fourth flashback of the movie starts. <laughs> where the prisoners tell us everything that had happened up until that point. They were explaining how people were getting possessed by the ghosts of uh, the original Martians and cutting themselves up and cutting off their faces to make masks. And I had definitely wondered... Before that point, when we had seen, like, a few of the kind of possessed, possessed weirdo folks, and we'd seen them with their, like, cool, cool kind of metal-in-the-face stuff, kind of reminds me of Return of the Living Dead Part 3. Totally. Like, uh, the, that look of the sort of metal shoved through the face kind of stuff. 
<laughs> so yeah, like that that kind of like a bunch of metal shit sticking out of the face kind of thing. And I was like, cool. I wonder what's going on there. And then they show you a scene where it's like, and then everybody started just poking some metal in their face. <laughs> it's like, uh, okay. <laughs> Speaking of metal poked in the face, one of the prisoners is our token new metal character of the film. He has a shaved head, a labrette piercing, and a barcode tattooed on the back of his neck. That's and he is sweet. dumb as shit. <laughs> he manages to somehow cut his finger off while smoking space moon rocks <laughs> and then accidentally blows himself up with a grenade later. He's, he's not having a good time. Luna must be the nice one. <laughs> you got that right, but you. I'm not as nice as Desolation. It's revealed when Jason Statham's character stumbles across these three guys who say, hey, we don't have any weapons. We're just holed up in this little thing. And he's like, all right, I'll take you back to where me and the other cops are hanging out. Uh, And they all immediately throw off their ponchos and reveal that they're actually well-armed mercenary pieces of shit. And they are here to free fellow gang member, James Desolation Williams. (laughs) (laughs) Now, James Desolation Williams does not have any of the star power that Kurt Russell would have brought to this. Now, these crooks are dumb as fucking shit, but the only people dumber are the police officers who manage to get captured by them immediately. (laughs) Yeah, but they break free and catch them in the fucking prison cell. Like, literally, they're all hugging Desolation, and they just close the door behind them. (laughs) Oh, no wonder they made me head prison guy. Now, the prisoners and the cops decide, hey, there's a whole bunch of killer Martian ghosts outside. Let's put aside our differences and come together as one. Uh, basically, the the Labour Party's dream. <laughs> <laughs> and they decide to all team up and put on cool trench coats and go and kill some fucking zombies. <laughs> now, yeah. it's at this point where I noticed that Ice Cube has gotten a haircut. <laughs> In between between these sequences being shot, it's extremely noticeable. Well, just just before this, I I feel like we have to talk about something for a second, which is Jason Statham sees that Pam Greer has been decapitated because she wandered off to look for something and they decided, that's enough of that character. Which seems to happen quite a bit in this movie. Somebody says, (laughs) I'm going to go look over here. And then they say, done. Your paycheck, your paycheck is in the mail. But so he sees your weather balloon is waiting for you to take you out. So, here. so this this um possessed woman who has decapitated Pam Greer puts her head on a pike along with a big row of other heads and then scrambles up and over a hill. And Jason Statham, doing his best, mildly perplexed face, follows her. He looks at Pam Greer and goes. And then he scrambles up over the hill and he sees them all doing their Cobra Axe Gang thing. But he sees the leader who, while while never named in the movie, is officially credited as... Big Daddy Mars. Oh, really? Love it. I was calling That's him incredible. Marilyn Martian. <laughs> it's funny. I make uh, my friends and my co-workers call me Big Daddy Mars. I wonder if they, I wonder if they knew about this. That this, rocks. This, this, to me, is one of these characters where, like, had a, had a lot of opportunities to make this character, like, pretty cool pretty badass fleshed out (laughs) yeah yeah so like the character looks pretty big he does look like a sword wielding martian barbarian version of marilyn manson (laughs) um his chin is pierced for some reason with a chain leading to some part of his armor you know it's because it's 2001 he's got got like a big we all had that he's got like a big orc (laughs) sword and all this sort of stuff so he looks pretty badass and we're, we're introduced to him as he just is lopping the fucking heads off of the miners who didn't get turned oh yeah and he's just going to town they they he does like three or four decapitations in a row while they all go pretty cool stuff Big Daddy Mars there is so much mutilation of people in this film they like find that grizzled old prospector who's just cutting his face up and chopping off his fingers it's 
pretty gross. <laughs> but uh, but but like to me, Big Daddy Mars, I think having been introduced in this fashion, turns into probably one of the all-time like underwhelming disappointments <laughs> of yeah. a big bad guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because one he literally doesn't get does to do nothing. Anything, does he? <laughs> you mentioned that he's underwhelming because while reading up on the production of this film. Apparently, the prosthetics for his face were so strong that he couldn't actually talk. No. So they didn't give him any lines. I need to. I need to point out at this point that to me, by far, the funniest thing in this whole movie is Big Daddy Mars's voice. Would you like to hear a drop of Big Daddy yes, Mars's voice? Because I, as soon as he started yelling in this movie, I was just overcome with laughter <laughs> and. I'm excited. Uh, let's 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 just have a little clip here. This is from towards the end of the movie, that when they've jumped off the train to try and do some stuff, and then Big Daddy Mars spots them and starts yelling out some commands. Here we go. Officer to the train, they've spotted us. Get your ass back here now. Big sounds like a fucking South he's Park. He's a South voice. Park character. He just he sounds like he's going. Darka, darka, darka. Yeah. yeah, like I said, he he was having a lot of trouble like, speaking. <laughs> I'm sure he's very eloquent. And it's the life. fucking silliest sounding thing. <laughs> it's so, like I don't know who was listening to that and went, "Ooh, oh, chills down my spine." Master of horror, oh, John Carpenter. Of course, he was the one listening. Now, after a brief firefight in which half of the characters either blow themselves up or are decapitated by a metal frisbee, mm-hmm. uh, so everyone cool. finds themselves back on the cool-ass train. <laughs> they kind of fill in the two char- other characters, who one of which is in a bizarre, strange character actor role, is the dad from Lizzie McGuire. That's who that guy was. Fuck, I was... Yeah, right. Well, you know... The, he's the communications the, like, dude or something. You know who right? he is. Yeah, they're like the the D-grade Jeff Goldblum type. That is Robert Carradine, who is David Carradine's brother. Oh, wow. You're no, kidding. Cool. <laughs> da- David Carradine's brother is the dad from Lizzie McGuire. <laughs> and also, um, you know the, the science officer we were talking about before, Whitlock? Yes. That is yeah. uh, Joanna Cassidy, who you may recognize as the sexy stripping replicant with a snake from Blade Runner. Now, it, it's funny, you'd think with that kind of pedigree that this would be a good movie. <laughs> However, <laughs> so now that we're on the train, Jason Statham announces to Natasha Henstridge, we have a situation. I need you to meet me in the back room of the train. Now I'm thinking, all right, finally, a twist. This film is completely devoid of twists or any kind of tension. But no, Jason Statham is still insanely horny <laughs> and is trying to fuck Natasha Hemsworth. There's at least three or four times in this movie. There's a part earlier on when they've when they've like gathered everybody in the police station and they've rounded up all the guns and he says to Natasha Henstridge's character again, he's like, hey, I need you to come and check this out in the back room. And they come in and he's <laughs> like, see this back door? It's very, very sturdy, very well barricaded. This door in here very solid and she's like what's your point he's like seems like it'd be a great room to fuck <laughs> and that's and that's it she's just like again really <laughs> he's just got his fucking dick hanging out of his fly <laughs> they get the fuck out of dodge on the train to which natasha henstridge says hey hold on a second these zombies are just going to turn up in mars canberra or wherever the capital of mars is So we need to nip this in the bud and we need to fuck up these Martians. The entire thing we've been trying to do the whole time is get on the train (laughs) and get the fuck out of here. Let's turn the train around immediately. I also did not understand why is they say, hey, there's a nuclear reactor which is powering a bunch of these bases. Yeah, this is the best. (laughs) What we should do is set off a nuclear reaction here hopefully vaporize these literal ghosts. Hey, what happens if I blow up the nuclear power plant? Will there be a large explosion? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Line <is> so good. <laughs> I love how Natasha Hendricks's character as well is like, oh, they just want their land back? Well, manifest destiny, bitch. <laughs> 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 yeah, there really isn't, especially considering that like, 
obviously this entire movie is this you know parable for uh, for colonization and everything but no characters in this movie draw that conclusion at any point. Nobody says, <laughs> no. like, you know how normally, like, in a ghost movie, there's someone who's like, well, maybe we should get the fuck out of the house, you know? Yeah. Like, None of them seem particularly happy to be on Mars or have any kind of connection to it either. No. But they're like, oh, like, I'm going to let some pimple-faced zombie ghost <laughs> boss me around. But they, but they establish, like... She like she even says these are actually the spirits of like whatever is the native inhabitants of Mars, and they're not going to stop until they have got rid of every like colonizing invader. And she even says we are the invaders in this scenario. <laughs> yeah. And so her conclusion from that isn't maybe we should fuck off out of Mars. It's we'd better nuke their planet. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's very much John Carpenter playing around with a lot of old cowboys and Indian tropes, but instead of Indians, it's kind of like Martian zombie fish people, <laughs> and instead of cowboys, it's drug-addicted new metal police officers. You know, classic, classic high noon I love situation. how that all comes to her as well after she has this huge, what was the drug called? crash clear? or something clear, clear clear withdrawal and they give it to her and she just trips out and sees the ghosts of all the martians and stuff and she sees 300 years of martian history and her first thought is fuck we gotta kill these guys <laughs> uh, i feel like what she she also sees in this she sees in this little vision statham explains she's been possessed and they toss her out the back door of the jail and so good good luck but statham says ah here's this necklace of hers that she hides her drugs in I'm going to take a pill of her drugs and give it to her, and that'll definitely fuck with the spirit that is possessing her. Because you know how (laughs) spirits hate it when you take it. Yeah, man. (laughs) Now, it's also worth pointing out that when she does take the drug to get unpossessed or repossessed, she is telling this to Jason Statham and Ice Cube about a flashback she had. She's recounting a flashback of a flashback while telling this story to the tribunal at the start of the film. So we're talking triple to quadruple flashbacks. It gets to seven, I think. I, I was keeping track. We are getting a little bit off tracks, little train pun for the train heads out there, because we're still on the train at this point. But it's at this point that I started making ravioli and was cleaning out my drains in my kitchen while this was playing. The film just nosedives from here. Characters that we've spent an hour and 20 minutes with have their heads lopped off by a metal frisbee, and we just don't give a fuck. It is just completely unceremonious as an yeah we give about as much of a fuck about their death as the movie seems to yeah (laughs) (laughs) david carradine's brother also gets killed by some frisbees oh yeah um everybody else gets knocked off except for lieutenant melanie ballard and james desolation williams they are on the train heading away but they hear some stuff going on on the roof Ice Cube goes out to deal with it. I I love this sequence as well because Melanie Ballard is wandering through the train carriage because she's heard like a a creepy noise and it's supposed to be this like little haunted house sequence of the film. But have you ever been on a train before? (laughs) Like those motherfuckers make some of the weirdest noises on the planet and these trains aren't even on Mars. (laughs) That planet, Mars. (laughs) So, so... Ice Cube gets out the back and he sees that there are a number of possessed guys, but also Big Daddy Mars is on the other carriage. Now, I would say at this point that we've had a lot of threatening aura from Big Daddy Mars (laughs) and there have been exactly two points at which he has been in a position to impose his will on these people. One was earlier in the movie when he turns up in a room and goes, (laughs) and and somebody, somebody just goes, oh, shit. And they shoot, like, an LPG canister that's next to him, setting him on fire, and he goes, Oh no, my one weakness. (laughs) So so he is just, like, immediately and extremely easily pacified in that scenario. He shows up a bit later looking scorched but angry. He pops up on the train. Desolation punches Big Daddy Mars a few times, who gets stuck on the train. He pulls the pin. 
Classic you know, the other half of the train goes away. <laughs> and then uh, the whole thing just kind of explodes. So it turns out that uh, Big Daddy Mars's one weakness was being exploded with dynamite. I guess we found out his weakness. Bullets. <laughs> so yeah, this movie ends with the returning to the courtroom at the start where the judge just goes, you expect us to believe that there's ghosts on Mars? Whatever, go to bed, get out of here, take some rest. Take some more of this sweet (laughs) drug you love so much. As she's laying down, going to sleep, she hears gunfire, and then next thing, Desolation Jones kicks through the door with a leather jacket and, like, Platinum Tech 9s, and they walk out, have this exchange, it's like, you would have been a good crook, you would have been a good cop. Nah, let's just kick some ass. It's what we do best. I love that the moral of the film is that the police are powerless to help and that they're just as criminal as the criminals that they persecute and that being addicted to drugs is the only thing that can save you from society's expectations to conform <laughs> to like a world of undignified, mindless barbarians and also colonialism's pretty cool. Like, it's just all over the show. The moral of the story is that um, the invaders will team up with criminals before they ever indulge your right to claim over a land. Uh, what a fucking movie. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times during the movie, I was just like, man, this is really badly edited. There's star wipes in this film. There's just, the, the like, the rhythm of the movie is all fucked up. Mm. I just had this constant sense of, I feel like somebody had an idea that they were kind of trying to go for, but the stuff that they shot didn't line up with that in any way. A lot of the sort of overlapping edits of the same shot over and over, there was a bunch of that throughout it. Yeah. There was all of what we talked about before, like the plot lines all kind of segueing back in together, except that it didn't work in any way because it was just... Like, I genuinely think that the film adaptation of Doom was better than this. For, like, a new metal movie on Mars kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's crazy that it goes for fucking, like, 92 minutes, but it feels like it's... It just... feels like nothing has happened oh in the movie. Oh my god, it's yeah. so boring. <laughs> it feels like the grumpiest episode of Star Trek. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's talk the production of the film, because it has a genuinely interesting production. Now, like we were saying earlier, this film started its life as it was supposed to be an escape from LA, escape from New York sequel. Now, over the years, I want to call, just call to attention the reappraisal that John Carpenter has had in, say, the last 15 years, because there was a time when he was not recognized as a master of horror i think that the john carpenter reappraisal and help me out here fellas it would have really started around the time that quentin tarantino and robert rodriguez really kicked off that exploitation grindhouse obsession i I think a lot of it also had to do with a lot of those movies finally getting put on dvd and stuff as well absolutely dvd would have been a big part of it yeah now at this point 2001 when this film was made john carpenter was at the very end of his career the reappraisal of carpenter is often looked at through rose tinted glasses where there's this long period after In the Mouth of Madness in 1995, starring Sam Neill, all the way through to 2001's Ghost of Mars, where he threw in the towel. But there was several films along the way. We had his Village of the Damned adaptation that sung oh, without yeah. a trace. Him and, him and Toby Hooper's uh, Body Bags film, which has the killer hair transplants. Yeah. We had That's... 1998's absolutely rubbish. Oh, John Carpenter's Vampires. Yeah, with John Bon Jovi. <laughs> no, that's the, isn't that the sequel? The oh, original one. The original one has James Woods as oh, the leading no. vampire hunter, which is even oh. more fucked up to consider. Yeah. And so that takes us up to Ghosts of Mars, and none of these films get a look in when we see these amazing retrospectives as Carpenter as the master of horror, because films like The Thing were laughed out of cinemas in 1986. He never got the credit that he gets today. Mm, Absolutely. Well, I think think as far as Carpenter goes, because I would say... This movie made me sad because I am a big carpenter head. Yeah. Um, I had not seen this movie before watching it for this purpose. 
And same. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I like, have watched it, was... it like within the last like four months or something. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like it was a bit of a it was a bit of a bummer to me because like you know I I, I feel like the last sort of quote unquote new John Carpenter movie that I had attempted to watch was The Ward from 2010. I still haven't um, seen that. How is it? <laughs> it's a bit workman like, isn't it? It's very journeyman. Very directed. well. It's it's very similar to Ghosts of Mars in the sense that it sucks. <laughs> this just seemingly very rote by the numbers, lifeless kind of thing, which. When you compare it to all of the things that people people do sort of have so much love for in, in their reappraisals, I mean, number one, we can give the man credit for essentially inventing the, like, unstoppable monster slasher genre yeah. with Halloween and doing the music for it, you know? Yeah. Same for things like uh, Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China are both, like, very sort of fun fantasy sci-fi yeah, things. Yeah, sure. You know, used Kurt Russell to great effect compared to the charisma vacuum that is this movie. Yeah. Even things like Prince of Darkness, which is Prince a of Darkness weird movie. rules, man. <laughs> Prince of Darkness rules. <laughs> yeah. What I would say made John Carpenter so worthwhile as a director in the seventies and eighties and, and got him so much love was doing this kind of genre fair that I think most people wouldn't have touched. Like, things that I think, on reflection, are genuinely interesting or things that are... Like, personally, I think that The Thing is, like, the most metal movie to oh, have dude. no form of metal in it. Yeah. Like, that movie fucking it's, rips. It's it is perfect. Front to end. It is fantastic. <laughs> it's funny you say that this got him so much love because... If you look back at the history of John Carpenter before the reappraisal, after his initial fanfare for for Halloween, he was really kind of kind of considered a hack for many years. The thing was absolutely devastated in reviews at the time. His films always made money, but he was never considered the auteur that he was today. Which, which is is fine in the sense that, like you know, a lot of artists are not appreciated in their time. Even even those movies, so even things like Halloween, Escape from New York, The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, They Live, you know? A lot of these things, I, like, I do personally think that John Carpenter probably gets given a bit more credit for, like, class-based analysis within movies than he deserves. Especially after the uh, political undertones of this yeah. film. But I think that a lot of those movies are like gen genuinely really interesting subjects, and a lot of them had people who, whether whether expected or otherwise, are also genuinely really charismatic, like Kurt Russell in the Thing. Yeah, Wilfred um, Brimley like, in the Thing. Like the whole cast of the Thing is the whole cast perfect. of the Thing is fantastic. Like um, Keith David oh, and Donald mm. Pleasance in Halloween, just running around screaming like it's. Uh, Roddy Roddy Piper in They, they Live, Live like yeah. was was genuinely a, a sort of amazing leading man in a way that was really unexpected. This this movie, I would describe this movie as containing absolutely zero surprises. Yeah, you know what I mean. For sure. Like there is not a shred of tension, not a twist to be found. Nothing. And and I think part of that, like part of what I have always loved about B movies and older horror movies, like particularly things that required a lot of practical effects and that sort of stuff is that even though those things um, can be and have been derided by people for a lot of years, for, like for a very long time, horror movies were, were the kind of bastard stepchild of cinema, even though from the sort of 90s, 2000s onwards, people realised, oh, they can actually make a shitload of money. Yeah. And so they're just as mainstream as anything else now. But for a really long time, they were, they were you know, they were B-movies. They mm. were trashy and everything. But when you watch a lot of those movies, you get the sense of from things that are lower budget, from things that required you to scrape together a cast and money and practical effects and all that sort of stuff. You get this kind of indelible sense of just the sort of passion that went into something, that there was there was some kind of love and some invention yeah. and and yeah, some interest. Whereas this movie, I just get no sense whatsoever that John Carpenter is remotely interested in anything he's doing. So passion is something I want to touch on here because I did look into a fair bit of the making of this film and you, you mentioned all of these fantastic 
carbon of films that were groundbreaking at the time and were original. And you have a look at Ghosts of Mars, and it's a grab bag of his whole Yeah, career. it really is, isn't it? Like, mm. the, the thing... Uh, being holed up um, by an invading force, the mist of is basically the fog, <laughs> yeah. the ghosts Fuck. wandering out of the it's mist. It's the greatest hits comp. The, and you've got this this invading force of mad and that are deranged and don't know why from in the mouth of madness. This is a greatest hits collection that is not a greatest hit. None of it works together. None of it comes together. And when I watched behind-the-scenes footage of what was going on, Carpenter is absent to the point of not being there throughout the production. He tasks a lot of the minuta of set to his assistants, his first ADs, his cinematographers, his stunt coordinators. He, in, I'm only counting on the footage that I've seen and the behind the scenes features and none of it involves him speaking to the actors. Yeah, it's just him jamming with anthrax or... (laughs) Yeah. Carpenter's gone on record as saying that he originally envisioned this film as a parody of the 80s action films such as First Blood uh, Commando was a touchstone for him and he felt that the cast really let him down and that no one was in on the joke and after reading that all I could think was it's your job yeah it's a real it's a real sour grapes kind of it's not it's never really a good look to insult your audience for not getting your movie insult your (laughs) insult your audience as well as insult all the people that worked on it now carpenter claims he sunk into a deep depression after making this film and didn't work in hollywood again i thought the one after watching it man That's also what Paul Verhoeven has said of making Hollow Man back in 1999. Now, when you look at these 80s auteurs, it probably would have been a real strange environment for them coming into the 90s where the blockbuster became king and the kind of more personal, more cerebral action, science fiction or horror films they made were kind of less and less what studios were looking to make and studios were looking to communicate. And so you get a film like Ghosts on Mars, which is very much a B-film, that they're trying to gussy up into a, a blockbuster the same way they tried to gussy up Hollow Man into a blockbuster. And it just doesn't yeah. work. None of it comes together. I get a bit of a sense with, like you're saying, that particular dynamic of somebody who had been around making movies in the 70s and 80s and starting to make stuff through like the 90s and the early 2000s. The reason they were able to keep making movies is because someone at a studio said... This person is experienced and a steady pair of hands who can make a thing, but that kind of beyond that, they they maybe didn't have like the passion or the support or whatever to do a thing anymore. I yeah. think that some of those older movies probably required like a fair bit of heavy lifting. Yeah, from... yeah. Now, before moving on to the soundtrack, let's talk a little bit about some of the fun little production trivia for this film. Al, can you fill us in on who was supposed to play Natasha Henstridge's role? Original role of the drug-addicted police officer, Melinda Babbage. Melinda Ballard. 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah, Melinda Ballard. Courtney Love was originally cast um, <laughs> and had to drop out last minute after her boyfriend ran over her foot. <laughs> it's, uh... Not just her boyfriend, her boyfriend's ex-wife oh, wow. ran over her foot <laughs> with a Volvo over a dispute they had over who planted cocaine in the car. The most Courtney Love sentence to ever, ever happen. On top of that, Ice Cube has kind of spoken about this film since and really vocally expressed his huge dissatisfaction with the whole process and coming from a place as a huge John Carpenter fan, talking about how much Halloween was one of his favourite films growing up as a kid and just being so disappointed that the film that he wanted to do with John Carpenter was just a plot. (laughs) Because there is a lot of, like, genuinely... I mean, there's a, a quote from Ice Cube saying... The movie is unwatchable in many ways. John Carpenter really let us down with the special effects on that one. And I was going to say, like, there's, there's the moment when um, Natasha Hentridge's character has uh, drug-induced, possessed vision of, like, the original populace of Mars. She kind of sees Big Daddy Mars suit with, like, 
I guess, his original form superimposed on him, which is apparently like 20 polygon... He looks like <laughs> a frog. <laughs> it looked like crocodile bad guys from Donkey Kong Country. Yeah. Like that, that kind of quality of CG. The type of thing where you're like, you know what you could have done is just left that out. That was how yeah. not good that We looked. are no richer for having this scene in the film. So, John Carpenter is most famous today, I would say, based on his current out- output as a creative artist for his music. He has, in the past few years, released two fantastic albums, Lost Themes 1 and 2, through Sacred Bones Records. And uh, there's, if you want to track it down, there's some fantastic interviews with him where he says that all he does now is play Xbox with his son until they decide to go tool around on synthesizers downstairs in the basement. He claims that the only thing that gets him out of bed nowadays is the NBA. So I'm assuming that quarantine has <laughs> absolutely made no impact to his life <laughs> outside of the NBA being cancelled. And, and we, I'm sure that we can all agree that what is totally boss is when John Carpenter is talking about them doing a remake of Nightmare on Elm Street or whatever and they go, ooh, what do you think of that? Who should be in it? And he goes, I don't give a fuck, send me the check. Yeah. Like, he, ju- he just says, he yeah. just says they don't give a fuck what I think, but they have to <laughs> act like, you know, it's relevant that I'm in... Like the Halloween remake. Because yeah. people are always desperate to be able to say that this, this thing that we're doing that isn't done by the original person, but we want it to have, you know, the cachet of that and everything... So it has to sound like it has the endorsement thing. And he's just like, I don't give a fuck. They want to be able to say that I'm involved and that I care about it. I don't. They have to give me the money that says, I said you could use my my intellectual property or whatever. And he says, I don't care. I just hang out. They send me checks. Great. And that's, and that's really rocks. good. <laughs> yeah, what's, what's not great is this middle ground between the original run of making movies you cared about and now um, watching NBA with your son or playing Xbox or whatever that middle space of like don't want to be here but i'm still making a movie that's kind of not enjoyable for anybody but i mean what with the soundtrack what i was kind of struck by was like throughout the movie there kept being these musical cues for action scene when you know like a a chugging riff would come in and a medium tempo hard rock type song would come on and I'd be like, oh, this is just on the soundtrack. I wonder when they're going to play a song that's on the soundtrack. And it wasn't until I was done with it that I was like, huh, let me see what the deal is with the soundtrack. Yeah. And oh boy, is there a deal. <laughs> and the deal is that John Carpenter just said, who is a bunch of musicians I would like to jam with? Well, it, it's funny you mention that because early on in the film, during the initial sequences on the train where they're still establishing everything, you get some classic John Carpenter synth work. He's obviously shifted his gear from his 80s Yamaha DX7 kind of cheesy synth bass era to a more 90s stripped back techno it's very stripped back and wonky kind of tape loop techno but then we get to the good stuff john carpenter claims that during the editing of this film he was listening to nothing but metallica and so his (laughs) producer gave him not metallica he gave him anthrax if you could To Anthrax's credit, they really do this sub-Master of Puppets style this film needs. But on top of that, there's also three guitar virtuosos from Buckethead. Robin Fink, who also played in Guns N' Roses with Buckethead, and Steve Vai just aimlessly noodling over the whole thing. So good. (laughs) Now, for a lot of our listeners, they would be familiar with Buckethead, but a lot of listeners wouldn't be. So let's give you a little rundown on Buckethead. He came to fame in the 90s post-Use Your Illusion era of Guns N' Roses where he took over for, I want to say, Slash left the band. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. Now, Buckethead is a guitar virtuoso. He's classically trained, fantastic, absolutely amazing guitarist, if that's your shebang. What he's most notable for is the fact that he wears a theater mask and a KFC fried chicken bucket on his head (laughs) and has never been unmasked. You know he's recorded 17 albums of Viggo Mortensen? What? (laughs) 
Bucket Hunt. Yeah, yeah. Viggo Mortensen has like 33 or 34 albums. It's fucking insane. Fuck if you look up his discography, Buckethead and Elijah Wood, I think, have played the most on Viggo Mortensen's albums. Holy <laughs> fucking shit. <laughs> this soundtrack is currently listed on Discogs for 62 Australian dollars as well. Oh, so if you guys are looking for a bargain. <laughs> now, you were telling me a bit about Buckethead recently, Al, weren't you? Oh, yeah. He's, he's got this horrible heart condition now where if he stands up too quickly, like, he could just <laughs> die. It's pretty... Oh, yeah. Like, apparently he can't even play guitar now because he's so sickly. I remember reading Met on Metal Sucks, there was just this real sad article about how, uh, yeah, any day now Buckethead could die. Which, you know, I guess that's kind of true for all of us, but none of us are Buckethead. <laughs> now, we talked a lot about this film as being an absolute charisma vacuum that was carried out by a director long past this prime as a passionless passion project. So Anthrax seems like a good fit for this because (laughs) they were long past their big four of thrash metal phase. And I want to say Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2 hadn't come out yet, which would really kind of invigorate them a bit. But this is really a paycheck for them. The guitar playing on display, the thrash that is composed by John Carpenter for them is just so rudimentary. Yeah, It, It sounds like demo tracks on a copy of Ableton or something like that. It's just pathetic. Like I said, listen, <laughs> listening to it on the, on the soundtrack of the actual movie, that those were the songs because it, it is just, like you said, the most rudimentary by the mm. numbers. It absolutely sounds like something that would be on, say, like a reality TV show or a Jeep commercial if they said, <laughs> we want hard rock. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's a YouTube ad that you hit <clears throat> skip. Like a really shitty video game soundtrack kind of thing. Like just... all, of the, all of the songs have the sweetest names, though. But, uh, out true. of the three, I picked... Dismemberment Blues. Yeah, Ghost Poppin, <laughs> Fight Train, and Dismemberment Blues. It's like, man, those are all... I'm like stealing Fight Train as a band name. That rules. <laughs> now, we'll be putting up this video on our social media because it really does hammer home the point about what we're talking about. But there's a special feature on the DVD that presents the actual recording process for this album and for the film. And it's very, very obvious that this was all put together in the space of a day everyone comes in for a couple of hours they lay down their parts that's it steve Vai pops in for an afternoon lays down just a couple of scales across the guitar and then he's on his way out of there for lunch (laughs) takes the next weather balloon out of there it's uh, oh. yeah. It's a six-minute video, and you can tell that they took a minute from every hour that they recorded. There's no nuance. There's no artistry to this soundtrack whatsoever. It does have the chugging guitars over electronic syncopated drums that you could expect from new metal. Yeah, would you say it's a metal. new metal soundtrack? Uh, it, it touches on it at parts. Characters yeah. wear trench coats. They hold shotguns. There's some noodling over the top of a drum machine. That's there's a character with a barcode on the back of his neck. Like it's, it's it ticks the ju- boxes. Yeah, it's just <laughs> very much ticking the boxes. It got the very lowest possible score to get its new metal driver's license. <laughs> mm. <laughs> So we've talked about the soundtrack, we've talked about production, we've recapped the plot. Before we do the Buddies Hit the Floor score, though, Sean and I would like to introduce a new segment. It's a little segment we called... The Poetry of New Metal Cinema. So guys, in this segment, we talk about our favourite lines from the film. If you can remember one line from this movie, what is it? And what about it fucking killed you? (laughs) (laughs) For me, it was a, a single line delivered by um, Natasha Henstridge's character as she looks up in disbelief at Ice Cube's character and she says to him, you know, I really don't understand you at all, desolation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sean, do you want to go next? (laughs) I would personally say it's when the prisoners reveal that they've tricked Jason Statham and that they were actually the members of Desolation Williams' gang this whole time. And Jason Statham turns to them and he says, 
you're meaning to tell me that you weren't minors? And in a completely apropos of nothing, bizarre British accent, the prisoner says, Oh, we lied! <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Cobb's Afghan's eye. He fucking pricks. We lied. I think for me, my favourite quote of the film is Jericho, Jason Statham's character, stumbling across a whole bunch of dead bodies and saying, this is not making me happy. Oh man, there's just so many quotes from this film. Look, before we do the Durst rating, we got to give this film a Bodies Hit the Floor score. Now, we'll play the sting here. Uh, Andrew, with the Bodies Hit the Floor score, it's uh, we rate a movie out of five bodies. much Kind of like five stars, but this time it's Bodies Hitting the Floor. How many, star- how many bodies hitting the floor? <laughs> I really need to find like a better way to describe this fucking thing. It really does not stand up to any kind of internal logic, does it? You could not- blow on it and fall over. Okay, on a, on a scale of one to four, imagining that there are four bodies, the bodies are currently upright... At a certain point, yep. some of the bodies determined by you based on your feelings about the movie will be hitting the floor. Not, <laughs> yeah. not all the bodies if that's how you feel. So imagine, each star is a body. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he gets it. I'm going um, to be maybe too kind to John Carpenter and give him one body. Yeah, wow, well, damn. And, <laughs> and, I, and I say this, I say this not lightly. I say this as a connoisseur of trash cinema of horror and B-movies. I have watched literally hundreds upon hundreds of films mm. like this. To me, in, in so many movies, like I said, in so many movies, there's always something to grab onto. There's something to enjoy, you know, whether it's, whether it's like um, unexpected intentional comedy, whether it's unintentional comedy, whether it's like just a cool vibe that someone's created, where, you know, there's some kind of amalgamation of the project between the director and all the actors and all the people who got together and built the sets and all that sort of shit. This movie is one of the absolute rare pieces where I can say pretty much nothing about this <laughs> did anything for me. One of the rare movies that I can tell you now I will never be watching again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it sucks. It's, it's terrible. Just, uh, just so few redeeming features. Yeah, it sucks. One body. One body <laughs> one unless body. we're doing zero bodies, you know? <laughs> yeah. Gonna be less generous than you, man. It's just a single half body, man. This, it's a torso. This is, yeah, it's just a fucking torso. No arms. Maybe, like... what. A little bit of neck is left over. It, it's. I, I watched it very recently. I really was kind of gritting my teeth about having to watch this again. Uh, it's one of the. I agree 100% with you that I will probably never, ever, ever watch this film again. Two times in four months is probably more than anybody has seen this movie <laughs> in the last 20 fucking years. It's definitely more than John Carpenter has ever seen this movie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sean, what about you, man? I'm going to give this a singular body hitting the floor, and that body is Jason Statham after he finished the filming of this film and took a shower and all of his hair fell out. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I I just... I don't know. You know what you do know, Al? The Durst rating. (laughs) Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Effortless. Six degrees of Durst. All right, guys. How about that segue, fellas? (laughs) Today we need to assign this film a numerical value that relates to its Durst ability rating. By that, I will be entering stats to figure out this film's six degrees of Durst rating. What? I'm a computer. Stop all the downloading. Now, Al, do you have an academic background in statistics uh, and probability? Uh, of sorts, yes. I will not be <laughs> elaborating any further. <laughs> this film 
the results have revealed, has a Durst rating of three, one more than the average number. John Carpenter Ooh, was in a film called The Silence, which featured Polly Holiday, the actress who was in The Heartbreak Kid with Ben Stiller, who was in Paulie Shore is Dead, featuring one Fred Durst. So, yeah, wow. right, write that down, guys. Three. <laughs> you do realize, Al, that Ice Cube starred in Fred Durst, the long shots. There's a Durst rating of one. Uh... <laughs> Before we finish up, Illy, do you have any... Anything you'd like to plug? Plug your socials, plug your Patreon. Socials. Um, just give uh, give Bunta Vista a go if you like. If you like the news, but not really the news, more about people's diarrhea and what Bigfoot's up to. Um, <laughs> you know, whether or not flamingos can have friends. Um, a lot of that kind of important news. N- nuanced discussion. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, we used to talk about the news a lot, but... It's kind of a bummer now. Yeah. <laughs> you just get kind of, you get kind of tired about it instead. Yeah. You look outside the window and realize it's kind of crazy yeah, out there. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. When I try and pitch Bunter to my friends, I'm always like, hey, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast. And they're like, yeah, I'm familiar with it. I'm like, all right, imagine that but racist. <laughs> That's not true. So if that tickles your fancy, please please track down Bunta Vista. And- so yeah, that's exactly what our podcast is. is it's mainly family court stuff. <laughs> yeah, Joe. <laughs> I love it. Now, if you're a fan of family court, Steve Vai, men long past their prime, I would like to close out today's episode asking you to please pay for our Patreon and be the fantastic Cudavilles with their soundtrack by John Carpenter to Big Trouble in Little <laughs> Yes, <Yeah>, sweet. <laughs> Thank you again. Thanks so much, Eli. Thanks for having me, guys.